KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Hi, I'm Rebecca Lair. And I'm Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. And today, we're talking about religion. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arrive. So Pew recently shared a stat, which is that 30% of Americans believe that being Christian is essential to American identity. Uh, so neither of us are Christian. <laughs> As you know, we're obsessed with American identity. <laughs> so we thought it might be worth asking and exploring a little bit about religion. And so I thought might, maybe I'd ask you, Amy, what your spiritual practice is. Well, so I was raised kind of, sort of, in the Presbyterian Korean church in the Midwest. Like, But for us, as an immigrant family, it, church wasn't so much about faith as it was about community. You know, my parents weren't believers, but we went to church because that's where Saturday school was, that's where Korean language instruction was, and that's where all the other Korean families in the greater Chicagoland area were. Wait, reminder, what is Saturday school? Saturday school is, like, where you go to do, like, kind of, like, Korean cultural exercises and the teacher, like, some of it is language instruction, so you get these worksheets where you're, like, stenciling out hangul. I mean, I have very... Very mm, profound memories, type of <laughs> most positive ones. Anyway, so I will say that going to Korean church in the Chicago in the eighties, it like it didn't have a real impact on my spiritual life. Mm-hmm. But this is going to sound really cheesy, and this is not some eat, pray, love nonsense. But I, I like I came into my spiritual beliefs as an adult in India. I had been traveling there for a couple months with my husband, um, you know, and it had been the first time in my life that. I was in a place and among people for whom like talking about divinity and talking about holiness and talking about prayer was something that happened at every moment of the day. It was just like a daily experience. And so it was while um, working there that I kind of came to the understanding that for me, service is my path to divinity. So everything I do, I can do with the lens of how does this serve others? How can I um, serve others better with the choices that I make? Mm -hmm. You know, and like how do my... Daily choices, really, whether they're consumer things, like do I buy this brand of whatever or do I send my kids to public school or am I, you know, nice to this guy who's being an asshole? Like (laughs) how does that kind of like daily experience bring me closer to God? Hmm. So that's that. By the way, I love Deep Pray Love, so I don't want to like, you know, but I understand (laughs) what you're saying. Um, So obviously we've talked a million times about how I'm Jewish and raised within that the tradition with attendant rituals. And I still practice that. And when I think about my daily spiritual practice, I think I think it's really maintaining my sense of awe. So Mm -hmm. some days are like bigger awe days than others, right? Swimming in the ocean with turtles and feeling how small I am and how big and awesome nature is. And so like some days I'm are just, wow, this food, I get to eat this amazing food or I get to use my voice or I get to scald my grandma on Skype. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and so it's some, it is actually amazing. It is. You should hear her talk about how the technology works. That's also amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's so important, the idea that, like, our spiritual practice can be the the tiny, tiny little, like, quotidian things in our life and also be the—and trying to embrace, like, the enormity that is the natural landscape in which we live and we're this, like, tiny— 
I know. And then you're like, the stars are actually bigger than the Earth. And then you're like, I can't. It's too much. I know. It also (laughs) makes your brain explode. Yeah. But I'm not an expert. And you're not an expert. Though we like to pretend. Oh, you guys. Fake it till you make it. (laughs) Fake it till you make it. Uh, That's why we called in Krista Tippett, the mellifluous voice at the center of the American conversation about spirituality, faith, and all the like. She's the host of On Being and author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, Einstein's God, conversations about science and the human spirit, and speaking of faith, why religion matters, and how to talk about it. Guys, she's literally won every award that exists out there. And having talked to her, we now know why. We are so excited. On to the show. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. So this is a question, Krista. In your natural state, do you have... Are you a curly or are you a straight-haired lady? I, my hair is, I think, wavy, and it depends on the humidity. So, yes. But also, my hair changed dramatically when I got pregnant after I had— oh, So, so the world I have is different so hair mm-hmm. a, after, like, my mid-30s than I had before, and it's much curlier, like, in the summer. It's naturally curly, but in the winter— that curl, I mean, right now it's really cold and dry in Minnesota, and my hair is very straight. So it's confused. It's very strange for your hair to change personality because it's, right, it's such a, like, an elemental building block of who you mm-hmm. are. So, Krista Tippett, how do you mash up? I am a journalist, theologian, oh, yeah, mother, and also a little girl from a small town in Oklahoma. I left, I fled for my life when I was 18, but it's always with you. <laughs> you know, I'd like to say something about there's a certain unease, like even a sadness in me just at this question, because part of my story of the background of my life is growing up in a place where people came to flee history mm. and to flee mm-hmm. their backgrounds. There's a very thin layer of culture when you don't let history in. And my father even was adopted. So so that whole genetic side of me remained a great mystery. Hmm. And then on my mother's side, where at least there was a story, no one cared too much about those stories. Mm. And I, you know, I think it's taken me a long time to feel feel like you have to create yourself out of whole cloth, which is another kind of American story. And it, it is a mashup too, but it you have to like even invent the materials you're working with. That idea of creating yourself from whole cloth And crafting your own identity. I think that's actually something that Rebecca and I and many mashups is very alien to us in some way Mm -hmm. because, you know, we we are very deeply rooted in cultural traditions and in faiths and in um, ethnic traditions. And we think about how do we create a new American one while still honoring the ones of the past. It's fascinating to think about when you don't have that intimate connection to a, quote, past. It's less unusual than you might think in certain parts of the country. But I I think it's a form of impoverishment, you know, because, in fact, none of us creates our lives out of whole cloth, right? I mean, that's a fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's also very stressful to do that. It's not natural. I mean, right, I think as humans, as creatures, we... We we mean we need each other. This is a this is a fundamental reality of our 
of our species. Uh, we can forget that. We can pretend like it's not true. We can forget where we came from. We cannot pass that on. But it still remains true in our bones. And so it's a lonely thing to um, imagine that you have to create your persona, your your identity out of whole cloth. And uh, But it's also quite American. I mean, in, 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 it in is. what you're saying, it's so American in that, like... It's so American. When you think about in most parts of the world, people continue to live at home when they're 18. And I know you have an 18-year-old, and I yeah. don't know I, about where they're living, but, you know, here, so very often, you're leaving home, going to college. You may live across the country. And I know a lot, uh, several studies about people's religiosity over um, or relationship to their religious background over time and who they end up marrying actually um, Mm -hmm. is impacted because if I'm moving across the country from my parents then or far away from them then I'm maybe not as integrated into the religious community I grew up in and more open to people from different backgrounds and therefore exposed to that and I can kind of be whatever I want to be in that moment and not to say that I'm not completely informed by where I'm coming from but there's something like in Spain you know somebody lives with their mom until they're 40 <laughs> you know right, like right. like they're just and maybe when and they're married they move across the street yeah or their wife moves <laughs> in and everybody lives together i mean it's it's a different sense of knowing where people come from and who they are yeah and i even think that the nuclear family which is a very recent invention mm. right and here is also another way we we kind of we we separated ourselves from the way we we'd always lived, the way we'd always loved, the way we raised our children, mm-hmm. and as you're saying, communicated, transmitted identity and history. But again, I keep coming back to this word lonely. Like I said a minute ago, mm. it's I don't think marriages and kind of what we call the nuclear family are supposed to be alone. Traditionally, even that kind of love is held in a larger web of relationships. Do you think that that loneliness is what drives people to seek out spirituality or a community of faith? It's one of the things people find in in faith and in in religious community that's not not a given in the rest mm-hmm. of life anymore. I I think that's also one reason in our time many people grow up without much of a strong religious formation, especially compared to previous generations. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet this longing doesn't go away. And uh, we have so many ways to seek that and to learn, to pick up the spiritual search ourselves um, at some point in life. But I I see often that when people do start walking down that path um, and taking it seriously, even if they pick it up really independently of any kind of tradition or identity, at some point um, they start they start turning to community um, and ritual. Um, you know, the, these these are core aspects of faith that have been carried forward in time and across generations, along with the the practices and the texts and the teachings, and and they belong together. If you guys love the stories we share, sign up for our newsletter at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. Every Saturday morning, you'll get our roundup of mashup news from around the world delivered right to you. It'll make you think, laugh, and have your thoughts provoked. 
Could there be a better way to wake up on the weekend? Mm, we think not. So do it. MashupAmericans.com slash newsletter. But now I'm Christian, right? Or you grew up in the church? Yes. Yeah. No, I grew I grew up Southern Baptist, and I would say, I would say, if I had an identity, you know that that would have been a, one of the strongest pieces of my identity growing up would be being Southern Baptist, being at church three times a week. What is your first memory of of church? Wow, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Well, my grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. I think it was something about you know seeing him in the pulpit, like being at his mm-hmm. church. He he taught at a, he preached he went around um, to little churches all over the state and we would go with him sometimes. How do you feel about that line in Hamilton about the fire and brimstone preacher? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I grew up. Fire and brimstone. <laughs> do you remember as a kid feeling spiritual, or was it just this? This is what life is: is church three times a week my grandfather on the pulpit was it a religious experience for you or did it did it evolve into one the religiosity of my childhood had a lot to do with rules it it mm-hmm. was about hellfire and brimstone and there was a lot of fear in it and ways that the world was a perilous place and things you could go wrong there was a lot of drama in it honestly which i think for a child is is pretty fascinating you know so it was right. it was the threat of eternal damnation but it was also this God of love, you know, this love that permeated the universe, which I would say is a great gift to be offered that sensibility, even if it was kind of internally contradictory. Um, I, but if I think about my, what was spiritual for me growing up, I think that that was as much about, um, let's say, the music mm. and the singing, mm. the hymns. You know, that's where I see myself having spiritual experiences when I think back on that. And and by that I mean that it was going through my whole body, right? So, I mean, this is right. and this is you know, as I've as I've gotten older and as I've gone as I've done this show for these years, I I I don't really believe in anything that's merely spiritual. I'm not that interested in anything that's merely spiritual. For me, you know, spirituality is embodied and it was in the singing, but also I would say in the singing, right, surrounded by the community, that I see that depth. And, you know, I have beautiful, again, like embodied memories of that. You know, I can almost take myself back there. It's funny you say that, actually. Um, every time I hear gospel music, I always, like, call Amy and I'm like, I'm if just this is weeping. how they want to get me, I'm in. They can take <laughs> this right. Jew yeah. and make her Christian because this music is moving me. It yeah. is like it bring it like uh, it absorbs my whole body. And I I need tips on how to get there, how to get in that zone. I see that everywhere. I I really see that when spirituality is deep and meaningful, it is in the body. Ritual. I just think we need ritual, right? And that's and that's part a part of religious experience, and that is about tethering s- spiritual feelings and ideas to movement, right? Mm. To flesh and mm. blood. Mm. And if we don't get it in synagogue or church, we recreate it, even if we recreate it with our 
the way we have a sacred space of our first cup of coffee in the morning, right? Mm. Or with our children, you know, we, we create rituals because somehow we need this and it, it does anchor us. The conversation that comes to mind for me about that is not about religion, but it speaks to this. It was a, a conversation I had years ago with a, a yoga teacher, a really wonderful yoga teacher who's also paraplegic. Mm. So he was paralyzed from the waist down in a car accident when he was 13 and his father died and his sister died. Oh, my and God. for like 20 years, what the doctors did and other well-meaning people, as they said, you know, forget your legs. They don't work. You know, you can be a, have bodybuilder arms. And But at some point, he wanted to connect his body up. And he started doing yoga. Somebody taught him yoga. And he's now become – he does adaptive yoga for people with disabilities and kind of yoga for people with all bodies. Yoga has also become something – a way for me to get into my body mm. in a way that's been really transformative. Anyway, he spoke this sentence that I've, I've never forgotten. And he said he'd never known anybody become more at home in their bodies in all its flaws and its grace – without becoming more compassionate towards all of life. Mm. Mm. And, you know, in Hebrew and in Arabic, also the word for compassion is, is connected to the root word for womb, rooted in these, this intimacy of physical relationship. And I'll tell you, I once interviewed this great theologian, Walter Brueggemann, who's just this amazing... Um, he's a Christian scholar of the Hebrew prophets. Somehow this came up with him about this, with the word compassion and and and, uh, and womb. And he, he uh, and I said something about how beautiful that was. And he, this man, right, is actually he said, well, he said yes. There's a lot of beauty about the image of wo- the woman giving birth, but it's also very uncomfortable. Mm. <laughs> And I thought, yeah, well, I know that better than uh, you. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so it's actually a great image to really think about mm. the fullness of that, you know, womb metaphor for our relationship to others. There's something about that physicalness that reminds us that it's it's attainable because it's just us. These are our bodies and our physical limbs, and it's not this not an intangible that. Yeah you have to necessarily think about so hard. Like if you can be compassionate with your body, you can be compassionate yes. with other people's bodies. And that can be your spirituality, that mm-hmm. that connects you to a spiritual life in some way. I know that for me, it's always really important to strip away what seems unattainable or like not for meanness about thinking about spirituality. Yeah. That like to make it more human is always feels really essential. So I love thinking about um, this theologian being like, well, the womb also, there's a lot of, there's some crazy stuff that happens in there, and it can hurt, yeah. and it can be things that you don't want to talk about. It's very yeah. indelicate because it's, that's real, and it's things that we can, we can relate to. And that our humanity stems from there. And so, and compassion yes. is so fundamental to our humanity, right? So, especially like with technology, that it kind of, is the opposite of being in your body. <laughs> like, yes, that's right. right. I feel yeah. like I'm. I get these headaches now. It's funny. It's because I, I'm staring at my phone, the onslaught of news, and staring at my phone, yeah. and I'm like, this is. I am. I'm not in my body. Like I feel that 
physically pain, but that I'm not um, embodying who I am or what I want to be. And I feel like a muddied energy. Now I'm going to get very California on you guys, but that's what I talked about. <laughs> I was feeling like a very muddy energy and I'm trying to get some clarity around it. I'm very sorry. I'm going to do some Reiki. but I think you need to juice. I know. Definitely. Well, definitely some juicing <laughs> happening here. Um, so Krista, I want to get to a question that I think is people want to live a more spiritual connected life, but mm-hmm. it's it's hard to even know what that means. You know, so what does yeah. it mean to you to, to live a spiritual life? I wish I could give an answer to that question. I mean, I, re- I really do think we all have to work that out kind of in fear and trembling with the raw materials of our lives, you know, the voc- I mean, I think of now, I think of Christianity as the, the mother tongue and homeland <laughs> of my spiritual practice. And there's so much about the Southern Baptist tradition that I grew up in that's fallen away, you know, the particularities. But but Christianity is that mother tongue, you know. And so mm-hmm. I, someone said to me early on, a wise person said, don't let your tradition be defined by the worst examples of it. Hmm. Oh, wow. I, mm-hmm. Right? Now, I do think there's a something natural that happens that we do— it's this it's this human process of growing up and questioning and separating in order to be yourself, right? And I think we kind of do with our faith traditions, if we grew up in one, what we do with our parents. You know, we come to some point where it's just all wrong. <laughs> right. I think it is important even, even just to acknowledge that we have, that there's a vocabulary we grew up with, a homeland, and, and at some point to, you know, interrogate that. And honor mm-hmm. that as part of us, whether even if we have rejected it. When I wrote the Becoming Wise book over the last few years, I was I was actually starting out with this image of spiritual genius, which was a phrase of Einstein. And mm. I was and this question people have asked me across the years about all the people, all the wise people you've interviewed, these these spiritual, big spiritual lives, you know, what are what are the common denominators? And I started out with kind of a lofty vision of that. I mean, it's a kind of a lofty version of the question you're asking, which is, you know, how to have a spiritual life. And the more I looked at it, the more I kept going closer and closer and closer to the ground hmm. of life and realizing that people who are wise, people who are deeply spiritual in a way that imprints the world around them, right, as opposed to just having a, you know, big spiritual experience, that emerges through the raw materials of their lives, the words mm. they speak, the way they inhabit their body. What they tweet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a new aspect to the historical view of how wisdom emerges. <laughs> we probably have to add a new category of how they work with technology. Yeah. And I just want to say one last thing, because I, I almost said this a few times. If you think about the wisest people you've known and the most spiritual people you've known, they probably have a smile on their face. I absolutely think that a sense of humor is a measure of spiritual depth. Totally. One bad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Hola. Please give us Cinco Estrellas on iTunes. It helps people find us, and it also makes us feel pretty good. iTunes.com slash mashup. Gracias. Oh, wow.
people tend to think about thinking about religion or studying religion or being a person yeah. of faith is, is like so heavy, right? And it's yeah. so seriously, and you're and you're and you're grappling with these big weighty questions all the time. But our actual experience with faith is so often not like that. And I think it's just such a helpful and fun reminder that like everybody also just lives their lives. Everybody, yeah, yeah um, which is so great, right? Because it makes yeah. again everything you connects us to these people that are so wise. A few years ago, my husband and I, we were in India, in Bihar, and we were doing um, a Buddha pilgrimage, and we ended up uh, in Bodhgaya, which I don't, I don't know if you have been there. I haven't um, been there, but of course I know. Yes. So for our listeners, Bodhgaya is where Buddha attained um, enlightenment. You can pay your respects and pray, and it's like there's like a UN of Buddhists there. So there's like... Buddhists from Myanmar and Thailand and India and everybody has their um, their spaces and the and the monks are all there either um, on pilgrimage or praying or living there, and we were at one temple, you know it's like reverent and beautiful and there's a wheel and then I like I look up, and along the railing of the uh, of the living space is like a maroon robe hanging over the edge and like a yellow scarf and I was like oh my god that's that's monk laundry that's, that's their laundry just like <laughs> right, right like on the railing of their apartment maybe that should yeah. be our like meditation word is monk laundry <laughs> monk laundry right. and I was like oh right monks have to do laundry I think you're getting at something that just feels more and more important to me that you know to this big question like how do I do this how do I have a spiritual life how do I become wise just kind of Pointing back to the fact that in our experiences of our lives, our loves, our families, the wise people we've come in contact with across our lives, we actually possess a well of intelligence Mm. um, that we just could take so much more seriously. Mm. And I feel that um, we we could extend this intelligence to our kind of life writ large with our fellow Americans. <laughs> totally. You know? You know, I, the kind of modern narrative is that faith is what creates a moral compass in America. You know, that, you know, and we ex- yeah. we demand this of many of our, our, of our political leaders, at least, you know, like, do you really go to church? Do you believe in God? You know, I mean, how important is... Religion in creating that moral compass, or is it really our community and this like in, this intelligence that you can d- derive from your from your daily life and from our elders that creates our moral compass? Our great traditions are these repositories, right, of uh, across mm-hmm. time teachings and texts and beliefs and practices and rituals that. You know, or this deep well of that. Having said that, our traditions also, you know, religions are containers for those truths. These are containers that are fashioned by human beings and led by human beings and carried forward in time by human beings and sometimes dropped and broken by human beings. I mean, yes, faith faith is one of the great sources of moral imagination. It, it, it is the human discipline that was created for that, but it doesn't necessarily provide that, right? And also, 
I would want to distinguish between lived faith and how often somebody goes to church, right? I mean, right. those things may correlate, and they, but they may not. That intelligence that you have from your daily experience, um, John Lewis, you know, the civil rights mm-hmm. hero, he told me about how when they were spiritually preparing themselves for their activism, which they did with incredible discipline, they trained themselves to look at anyone, including somebody who was beating them, and to remember that that person at some point was a little baby and wow. to wonder, to like actively wonder as a way of putting themselves into the kind of relationship they wanted to be. What happened? What happened to that little baby mm. to bring them to this point? Mm. I mean, just speaking of American identity, you know, there's so many ways American Christians have conflated what it is to be American and what it is to be Christian to the point that people don't really truly are not aware of the difference anymore. It's, it's not mm-hmm. even their fault. Pew just released this tidbit. Oh, yeah. That 30 percent of Americans believe that being yeah. Christian is essential to an American identity. And yeah. what? neither of us <laughs> being Christians, that feels um, alienating, if you, as you can imagine. But 70 um, percent of Americans are Christian. Does that surprise you how much that is conflated? I guess so when I hear that and I'm and I like when I read it in the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> which is right. where I would read it. What is communicated and I understand this because there's also this side of me. How stupid is that? Right? How how wrong, how how narrow-minded, mm-hmm. how ignorant. I also know that that's what I grew up believing. It infused. Um, church wasn't just uh, it wasn't just a place of religion. It was a it was a center of of social life. It was everybody I knew, and so so people are are internalizing these things, and that they've been internalizing them for a long, long time. Um. And that doesn't make this any more complicated or difficult or distressing. But I guess what's really important to me now with anything like that or with just our, you know, the divide writ large in our political life, that we not assume flawed character or intelligence um, in the people who hold different positions I think there are different callings right now, and there are certainly there are certainly things that need to be resisted. And I think some of us are going to be called to like place our bodies in front of people who are threatened. Mm. There have been people threatened and vulnerable for a long time in our midst. All kinds of people, of all kinds of races and ethnicities and social classes, who we haven't been paying enough attention to. Yeah. And I think at the same time that there's that calling, there's this much quieter calling to kind of move towards others in a spirit of wanting to understand, willing to be surprised, and creating relationships in which new kinds of information (laughs) uh, can be exchanged in a trustworthy, you know, respectful um, spirit. You know, as a person who's been asking questions about, like, the most vast and unknowable subject— as a career move, Krista, is, yeah, right. you know, and like, is there ever an answer or like, do, do we ever stop or is this, 
all of this, is it always in the seeking? I don't think it's always in the seeking. I mean, I think also we're called to be discerning truth. And, and, and when, we, when we see a piece of the truth and we, we can put words around it, that's a beautiful thing. And that's also something we offer to the world. Um, however, I do believe that faith is, has an evolutionary quality. I think it has an evolutionary quality in any in individual life and in a culture. And when I say that, I'm not honoring people who, who have a very strong identity that they maintain all their lives, right? But I still think somebody who, who has a, a dynamic and, and ever-deepening spiritual experience, even if there's, they, there's, a, there's a piece of conviction that, they, that they've held all their lives, right? That let's say even this, I believe in God, you know? Somebody with a deep spirituality who's been able to say that sentence all of their lives, it still had very different connotations when they were 12, when they were 25, mm-hmm. when they were 55, when they were 80. So there's evolution in the meaning of what we believe and the way we live that uh, across our lives if we are truly alive. Amen, as they say. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Krista. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be with you. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. That was Krista Tippett, and she is basically everything that we need right now. So it was just such an honor after hearing her for so many years and so helpful to get a little perspective. Mm-hmm. You can find On Being at onbeing.org or anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also get the paperback version of Becoming Wise, which is coming out at the end of February. I just love the idea that the wisest, most spiritual people in the world are always smiling. New mantras. Monk laundry, always smile. <laughs> Everybody poops. Everybody poops. Everybody poops. Yes. <laughs> monk laundry anyway we want to hear about your mantras and spiritual practices share with us on facebook at facebook.com slash mashup americans or write to us at yo at mashupamericans.com the mashup americans are me rebecca lehrer and me amy Choi. our producer today was jocelyn gonzalez our show is produced by american public media and southern california public radio kpcc we're also supported in part by an award from the national endowment for the arts on the web at arts.gov amen sister amen Sometimes it just might find mm. Mm. You get what you need